Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Body High podcast. Today's episode will be very helpful to anyone who has lived as a disciple of the religion of thinness. According to Michelle Lelwika, who is a theology professor, contributing writer for Psychology Today, and author of the book, The Religion of Thinness, the decline of organized religion has left a spiritual void in the lives of many women. And as a substitute, we have adopted a devoutness to body perfection, sold to us in magazines, late night infomercials, and billboards of young, fashionable, and beautiful women who seem to have it all. Their thinness is sold to us as the answer to eternal happiness. And for many women, their entire lives are spent trying to attain this ideal. The religion of thinness provides us with symbols, rituals, and beliefs that keep us loyal and faithful. In the introduction to her book, Michelle Lelwika describes this devotion as follows. This religion teaches us that controlling our weight will give us a feeling of control over our lives. It offers us the hope of health and happiness through the idea of the perfect body, which we believe is attainable through diet and exercise. It teaches us to feel morally superior if we eat right, meaning fewer fat grams and calories. And it connects us to a larger community of women who are also trying to lose weight. It gives us rituals like counting and burning calories that create a sense of order. And it includes a plethora of icons and symbols in the form of models and actresses in whose image we are encouraged to recreate ourselves. Perhaps, most importantly of all, it gives us an ultimate purpose, the salvation that comes from being thin. Do Michelle's words ring true for any of you? For me, my commitment to the religion of thinness has been my longest lasting relationship. It started off as thinness obsession during my younger anorexic years and all throughout college, but it later turned into the religion of fitness. This meant an obsession with low body fat and a desire for lean muscle, a sculpted body, an athletic body, six pack abs, full delts, and a rounded, lifted, tight butt. No jiggle permitted. Folds and sags and cellulite were the enemy. They were, in my mind, my devil. And only the salvation of fitness could overcome it. However, after spending thousands of dollars and hours on transforming my body through diet and exercise to look like a girl who could be on the cover of Shape magazine, the void was still there except that it was worse because I realized that the religion I had been devoted to was nothing but temporary vanity disguising itself as eternal bliss. I'd been duped, I'd been scammed, and I felt heartbroken. I felt kind of lost because I didn't know what else to believe in anymore. I didn't know what else I could dedicate myself to so loyally that could give me the happiness that I was looking for. Even while possessing the holy grail of what I considered to be physical perfection, I fell into a deep depression and into a chaotic and violent world of binging and purging like I had never experienced before. Michelle writes, but in the end, its promises are hollow. The religion of thinness cannot fill the emptiness we feel inside ourselves. It cannot satisfy our deepest hungers. The hope it offers is an illusion, one that we have been fed by the media and other sources, and one that many of us have consumed with a religious-like fervor, 
in a quest for meaning and purpose. I know, because I too was a disciple. So in today's podcast, Michelle and I go into the spiritual component behind our obsessions with body perfection and how we can learn to transform this devotion into something that actually serves not only us, but humanity and our planet. Uh, Michelle, could you just talk a little bit about uh, your background, you know, growing up, your experience dealing with the religion of thinness and uh, why is it something that continues to interest you? Yeah. Well, you know, when I think back, I think my own relationship with my body was not good as a child. I was a large-bodied girl. I, you know, pretty much since junior high, I've been pretty average size, but I started out larger than, I guess, average. And I had a real self-consciousness about that, probably because I was spending tons of time with popular culture. And back in those days, that meant TV and magazines. You know, I, I joke a little bit about how Seventeen Magazine had become my Bible by the time I was 13 years old. And, you know, there's a real parallel there. I mean, I really saw it as kind of, you know, the truth. And um, I didn't look like anybody in there. I was short and round and not angular, not tall, not glamorous. And I also, in my family, you know, I think, um, I thought about this more as I've gotten older. My brothers were all-star athletes and had a kind of grace and, and ease with their physicality that I never had. And I was so not athletic. I mean, I they didn't have a category for me in the presidential fitness test thing, you know, that they did. I don't know if they still do that. But, like, I was so slow and uncoordinated. And I really, I think, in many ways, started very young traveling away from my body and realized that my body was not some, it wasn't the place that I wanted to identify with. And yet at the same time, I also, the messages around me were telling me that I had to, I had to identify with it, you know, because that's how girls got their value. And um, my family was also very religious. Um, my parents were very Catholic and um, since then have become extremely progressive, but at the time they were pretty traditional. And so the message I got also was, how can I be good? You know, I, I, I grew up wanting to be good. And I think that came a lot from my religious upbringing. And um, for me, being good meant, you know, being nice to people. But gradually, I, through my relationship with my body, which was, you know, full of conflict and dislike, I think I came to see that one way to be good would be to make my body good. And the definition of good was in, um, according to the society around me, to be thinner. So then fast forward, I went to college. Um, well, actually, I the desire to make my body good led me into an eating disorder by the time I was about 14. And that really started with, you know, a few compliments once I started getting a little taller and less pudgy. And people started really saying, you know, you look better. You're starting to look less pudgy. And those kinds of comments in middle school just go so deep. And, you know, I know I'm not the only woman who struggles with those ghosts in my head. But by the time I was 14, this was in the late 1970s. So you have to think back. Anorexia and bulimia were not household words. Nobody had really even been talking about them. But somehow or other, someone on my cheerleading squad had read an article about this great way to lose weight, 
which was to you know, basically stick your finger down your throat. And I had already been so hungry for not eating because I was trying to lose weight that this seemed like the perfect solution. I could eat and lose weight. So um, that I, it was in, I was 14 years old with a group of girls in a bathroom. We all started trying to throw up. And for a few of us, the habit stuck. And um, so now fast forward to college. By the time I was entering college, I had become so scared of what I was doing to my body. I wasn't menstruating. I was getting cavities. And so I had kind of, and I can't really explain it, I had kind of just decided I have to stop this. So the summer before my senior year in high school, I had basically started to eat more healthy, and I had stopped the binging and purging pattern. That had been going on for about three and a half years. But I still had that mentality. You know, you can stop the behavior and still have the mentality, wishing you were thinner, feeling like you have to punish yourself. Went to college, got introduced to feminism, frankly, and um, I love this part of the story, that it was really Catholic nuns who introduced me to feminism and um, insisted that I start thinking more seriously, taking myself more seriously as a whole person and really shifted my paradigm in terms of how women are often so critical of themselves because society teaches them to be critical of themselves. And they really helped me shift the critique from my own body to the world around me and the messages I had absorbed. So I started becoming a critical thinker which was totally lacking in my upbringing. I had just absorbed everything in an unfiltered way. And God bless those nuns. I mean, they really, really helped me shape. They helped shape my way of seeing that the, the messages women get about our value and our worth, being so focused on our appearance and so focused on kind of living up to this feminine ideal, had done so much damage to me. Then I got to graduate school and I started um, seeing the connection to religion and how the, in graduate school I was starting to study about religion and really how the narratives I was encountering in religion, and I focused primarily on Christianity because that's what was most familiar to me. These messages about women that came from our, my religious tradition were so familiar to me about women's bodies being problematic about women's bodies needing to be controlled, about female appetite being dangerous. I mean, think about what really clicked for me was when I started thinking about the story of Adam and Eve, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm a religion scholar, so I don't believe Adam and Eve existed as real persons. I think it's a myth. Um, but it's a myth that became so powerful in Western culture, and I think it's still part of our collective unconscious. And if you really think about what, happens in that story when Eve eats the forbidden fruit. I mean, that's how sin and death come into the world. And there's a message. I don't think it was the message the authors intended, but there's a message that somehow female appetite is dangerous, out of control, needs supervision. And um, that message is still, you know, I hear it all the time. I listen to my students who are college students talk about, you know, their fear of getting fat or I ate too much or um, that sense of shame that follows women after they eat, after they have the pleasure of eating. So I guess to wrap this up, what continues to motivate me 
long, you know, long after I feel a lot better relationship with my own body is I just hear the stories of other women and I see so much suffering and it makes me angry. And that anger turns into determination to want to write a different narrative and help women develop a different relationship with their body. Yeah. Your book definitely helped me. It was a big paradigm shifter for me. I mean, it's kind of stuff that I already into it. It just, I'm like, yes, I knew this all along, you know, it just, it was yeah. like, uh-huh. um, I also grew up Christian, so it, it made a lot of sense to me. But one of the things that was, that really struck me was the inherent need for ritual mm-hmm. in the human being. Yeah. Um, whether you're devoting it to the religion of fitness or whether you're devoting it to something else in your life, ritual is important. Ritual yeah. is part of our DNA. Yeah. Um, because if you think about time, yeah, sure. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun comes up, the sun goes down and the seasons mm-hmm. change, but the plants and the animals, they could care less, you know, like they, they're not keeping track of time, <laughs> but right. for us in, in order to have, in order to have a sense of, of, of things making sense and having some kind of structure rituals, or I think in our modern world, Un, unacknowledged rituals or um, unconscious rituals, which are routines, yeah. you know, they're part of, of the human makeup. So that's one yeah. of the things that you pointed out that really stuck out to me. Another thing was devotion. You know, there's there's a way in which, because organized religion has failed a lot of people, because it's hurt a lot of people in many ways, people have been very yeah. turned off by it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I did this too when I was a little younger. You know, I became an atheist and... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I needed to do that for a little while, but we do need to devote ourselves to something, be it something religious yeah. or some other kind of bigger purpose than us. And yeah. for a lot of women who haven't quite figured out what that thing that they need to devote themselves to is, religion of thinness really comes as a very um, welcomed substitute. I think you said that so well. You know, it's such a profound source of meaning to find meaning in thinness because the messages we're surrounded with in our culture are constantly telling us this is a a ready-made, easy, easily accessible. Of course, we know it's not easy, um, at least for a lot of people being thin. Um, But the cultural message is this is a way to define your worth. This is a way to feel meaning. And this, I, I think what you're bringing in about ritual is really important too. This is a way to create order out of chaos. Rituals help us create a sense of order. And I love what you said about how animals aren't obsessed with rituals, right? They don't experience the world, I think, in the chaotic way that a lot of us do. We don't, they don't experience the uncertainty. They don't have those thinking brains um, that we do. And so we experience a lot of uncertainty, chaos. Life is always changing. I think the Buddhists really got it right. You know, we, we, the fundamental human condition is we are constantly changing and we feel this background sense of insecurity and chaos and rituals help us with that. And, you know, for a long time, I had a really negative view of rituals because growing up Catholic, it seemed like you just go through the motions and, then I realized, you know, rituals can be good, they can be helpful, and they can be harmful. And I think the rituals that our culture gives women with relation to how to create order out of chaos through trying to control their bodies are really, really damaging. And I think what you said about wanting to be devoted to something, I think it, as human beings, you know, we are 
always orienting ourselves towards something we deem really important, you know? Even, you know, sometimes I, I think, um, I think that if you're, regardless of what your spiritual orientation is, we're all having something that we consider most important. And for women, again, the message that our culture gives us is one of the ways you can think about what's most important is you can work on your body and make your body into kind of the ultimate project. And I think part of the problem is that the culture doesn't say you should make this your sacred project, right? Mm -hmm. The cultural messages are much more wrapped up in, you know, the advertisements of you can, you know, in just four weeks, you can lose four pounds or 10 pounds, you know, whatever they are. The promises come in these kind of, you know, commercial saccharine packages, but the message is we can have a purpose and the purpose can be losing weight. And I think, especially for those of us who have felt disenchanted by traditional religion, this is a substitute that is very seductive. And yet it has the worst patterns of patriarchal religion embedded in it. You know, we're not doing ourselves a favor by joining this religion of thinness. In fact, what we're doing is perhaps missing some of the best elements of traditional religion and going for the, their kind of patriarchal form in the secular, you know, secular guise. You know, the religion of thinness really encourages women to feel good about themselves insofar as they're in control of their bodies, right? Not to feel good about themselves the way they are, but to always have to achieve a more perfect image. And the shame that surrounds that quest for perfection is really, really hurtful. I was um, reading recently a book by Brene Brown. She She's a shame researcher, and she makes this beautiful point um, that I hadn't really thought about, but it really speaks to my experience that the quest for perfection is a recipe for shame. Mm. that shame and perfection are really related. And that just speaks so true to my experience because um, it, it just feels as though I remember, especially being really deep in the mentality of just wanting my body to be so much more perfect and the shame that was just around the corner all the time in that mentality. It was like a flight from shame into perfection. There was nothing in between. There was no ambiguity. There was no chaos, you know? You you mentioned um, you mentioned in your book the importance of having new icons and in particular mm-hmm. this was very effective for me looking at the art of like the the Neolithic period mm-hmm. looking at um, you know the seated goddess and the bull and yeah. um, you know these these statuettes of women who are uh, of all ages. I don't really see a lot of necessarily like like really young girls, but I see a lot of statuettes of like women who are mothers. Yeah. Um, who've developed the body of a woman who's had a lot of children, you know, with right. you know, rolls and big breath, big sagging boobs and big yeah. thighs. Even like you see like a little bit of cellulite in the in, yeah. it, and and they're magnificent. It's like um it is so different than the images we see today. And I think often about what it must have been like for a woman, a little girl during that time mm. to have the images that were around them, the art around them reflect back a different image of woman. Um, 
Could you talk a little bit more about that, about the need for having new types of icons? Like you even mentioned Mother Teresa, you know, like women with bigger purposes. (laughs) You know, I think we have been so impoverished in the way our imaginations have developed in our culture because we've learned to see beauty in kind of a one size fits all way. And we miss and fail to develop the kind the ability to see beauty in real women, you know, in women who have cellulite, in women who have sags, in women who have wrinkles, in women who have gray hair, whatever. Um, so I think the way the images that we're encouraged to be devoted to, and I'm talking, you know, every, nowadays we have, you know, the whole internet and, and that multiplies everything times a billion, but the magazine images, the Hollywood images, the starlets, all of those encourage us to see beauty in one very narrow form. And if we look back throughout history, women had much more, um, there, there are images of women and, you know, we don't have the mass media really until the 16th century, really. And then or then it's um, it doesn't become a mass media until really the 20th century. But we don't have the reproductive capacity until the invent, invention of the Gutenberg, all of that. But looking back at, you brought up the figurines of the ancient goddesses. I mean, their bodies are voluptuous beyond our wildest imagination. And think about what that would be like to grow up surrounded by a diversity of images. And I'm not saying they would all even need to be large-bodied women with big breasts and huge butts. But what if we had a diversity? And what if we learned to see beauty in diversity. I mean, I really think the religion of thinness, one of the worst things it does is it teaches us to devalue diversity and diversity of female body size, female body shapes. I've really been playing with this lately in my own life, like just learning to see beauty in diverse bodies, um, old body, old female bodies, fat female bodies, um, oddly shaped female bodies, disabled female bodies. What prevents us from seeing beauty in that diversity? And it is that our imaginations have been, we don't come out of the womb that way. You know, our imaginations have been trained. There's a a beautiful story by um, a Buddhist teacher named Joan Tollefson, and she was born without her arm on the right ends at the elbow. So she was born basically without a right arm. And she talks about how when she was growing up, people would come up to her and, you know, pat her on the head and say, oh, you poor thing, or you're so brave, or, you know, kind of turn her into either a victim or a hero. And then she says when she interacts with children or animals, what she notices is that they don't turn her into a victim or a hero. They just are curious about what's different about her body. Mm. And they're not afraid they don't think she's, you know, heroic. They're, um, they're, they'll touch it, and they see it for what it is. They don't put all of these kind of preconceived labels for how it's supposed to be. And if we could learn to see each other's bodies for what they are rather than what they're not, do you know what I'm saying? If we could learn to see our own bodies and appreciate them for what they are rather than what they're not, I think that would be a big step. But I don't think we can do that until we have more exposure to a diversity of images. And I think we have feminist artists who are working with this. We have feminist photographers who are taking pictures and publishing books of 
large-bodied women. I think we need more um, opening of our imagination, and we need the help of our artists um, and, and the people who produce that kind of mass cultural imagery to put out there a diversity of female bodies as beautiful. And we don't, you know, we're not, I don't think we're going to go back to worshiping little statuettes of female bodies, you know, (laughs) but I do think we have opportunities to, um, relate to images of diversity. And some of that we can just do on our own. I mean, put a picture of your grandmother up on your bathroom wall and look at her every day. You know, and thank her and see the beauty in her wrinkles and imagine what her life was like and appreciate and um, know that whether she's dead or alive, you know, she wants you to feel okay in your own body. Something you mentioned earlier was insecurity. Hmm. It had a completely new meaning to me because when we think of somebody being insecure, you know, I I think of myself like that. There's, there's, Mm -hmm. There's parts of myself that... I'm growing, but there's still things that I feel very insecure about. But when I used to think about insecurity, I would think, oh, well, it's, I'm not secure within myself. I made it a Uh personal issue. Mm -hmm. But Uh the way you framed it completely changed it because it was beyond a personal issue. Insecurity as in lack of security for the world you live in. When you think of insecurity as in, I'm not quite sure that what I have been made to believe about the world is something that my inner being feels secure about. Yeah. It changes things because then it becomes about the culture. Yes. You talk about the importance of becoming a cultural critic. That's tough because let's say that you're a young woman who's realizing this, but then your mom still doesn't realize it yeah, or right. your grandma when you go visit her and, or, or your friends, you know, like when you hang out with your friends and all they do is talk about dieting. Yeah. It requires yeah. that you kind of, you have to build a security for yourself. Yeah. And that's a tough place to be for, for young women who today don't have, you know, the close knit society to help them with that. When everything in the society is making it very tough for them to stay consistent in their paradigm shifting. What, what, I mean, what advice would you give to young women, even women like now I'm 30, I see women who are 35 still stuck in this women who are 40 and 50 and 60 still, still stuck with this belief, still, still, you know, slaving away to be thin, still wishing they were different. What kind of advice would you give to the women who you know, really want to have that paradigm shift, but where everything around them is making it very difficult to do so. Oh, you said that so well. And you described, you described the paradigm shift. I think that needs to happen from what's wrong with me, right? That insecurity that, that, that really personalizes the whole issue. What's wrong with me from that way of thinking to what is wrong with our society? And that, I think that shift in thinking, that shift in critique, the shift from self-critique, self-blame, self-hatred, self-loathing toward being critical toward the messages we get is fundamental for healing. But I think you're absolutely right. It is impossible to do that alone. And, 
you know, in my own journey out of an eating disorder, I'll tell you what was really critical was finding some like-minded friends who could also share in my critique of the culture and who could, who could do a reality check for me and say, you know what, Michelle, that's just, you know, that's, that's not true. That's not true. Or who could kind of be with me and allow me to talk about how vulnerable I felt to messages, you know, like how I would have to stop watching a TV show or a movie or how a movie really made me pissed off because it just triggered my thinking, you know, I like felt like I'd been in recovery for a long time and then I'd watch a stupid movie with like, oh, who, Julia Roberts or something and like just shame trigger shame trigger you know like god I, you know already i'd start watching the movie and within five minutes i'm thinking about how i need to start starting myself again you know so honestly i think having people that i could be honest with about that was tremendously healing people who didn't shame me people who didn't say you did what or come on get over it so I, I do think it's, I think we need to become really intentional about the kinds of communities we form and the kinds of friendships and the kinds of, if we're forming friendships that invest a lot of energy in bonding over calorie counting and weight loss successes and failures, that is probably not going to help us move into the new paradigm of what's wrong with our culture. So I became pretty deliberate in trying to, you know, it wasn't like I sought them out, but it just, I think my life evolved in a way. And I was very fortunate to be in in a college where I met people and then in graduate school where I met people who encouraged my cultural critique rather than made me feel insane about it. You know, because I think that that's also the thing. Once you start criticizing the culture, the culture is the popular culture, so it's the mainstream. Once you start becoming a cultural critic, people are going to start thinking you're crazy. They're going to start sending you a message that you're spoiling the fun, you know? And so it really is critical to find at least a, a, some like-minded folks who can share your critique and think in a countercultural way and be bold about being countercultural rather than feeling ashamed or insecure or apologetic about being countercultural. You know, women were so trained to apologize about everything, and so to, to be able to look at the world and say, you know what, that message is damaging to me and I, I'm, I'm not going to take it in and I need to talk with you about it because I don't want to take it in and not apologizing about it is crucial. I also think there's something um, when you don't have the people around you to like your, your elders, let's say, or you don't have the elder wise yeah. women or the wise men when, you know, when they themselves are acting like, children yeah yeah you realize that if your grandmother is still talking about the stuff yeah your grandmother has lived with this as well yeah. for way longer and there's a way yeah. in which you can like start to feel compassion for the people mm. who mm. attack you or the people who continue to push this onto you in a way they don't want to give it up because they built yeah. their whole life on this belief system and it's like what yeah. i'm 80 now i'm just supposed to drop it and like be like oh, yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> you know yeah that's a good point i mean i think seeing that helps us have compassion towards people who are still stuck in that kind of thinking because it doesn't feel good. We all know it doesn't feel good to hate yourself and feel like you're not good enough. And when people around you are giving you that message, they're struggling with it too. And so, you know, to, to feel compassion for them, I think, and empathy as you move on and create new sources of meaning and new ways of defining your value and worth is just so key. 
Do you have you you don't have any 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 daughters, right? You only have uh, boys. I only have two boys. Yeah. Um, do you mind me asking uh, how, how old they are? No, they're. Um, I have a twelve-year-old and a fifteen-year-old, and it's funny you should even bring them up because just the other day I was noticing how carefree their relationship to their bodies <laughs> are. <laughs> yeah, and it just feels like honestly, it feels so unfair when I think about. You know, the how girls don't get that. And I'm not saying all boys have a carefree relationship with their bodies. I think boys increasingly are encouraged to struggle and have ideals that they can't live up to either. But my two sons happen to be, um, you know, fairly average and, um, you know, muscular enough that they're, you know, they're athletic and all of that. And they have this just un- self-conscious relationship with their body they stop eating when they're full they love ice cream and i do not feel an ounce of shame about anything you know they just they they'll spend a day not having exercise at all and not give it a second thought and then you know they'll go and play in a basketball tournament and play three games in one day. i mean it's just such an unselfconscious relationship to their body that it just blows me away because I know it, that is just not an option for so many girls in our culture and and some boys too yeah increasingly for for a lot of men because I, yeah. I do see that sometimes I think about this as for a lot of women in our time in this country overcoming the religion of thinness seeing seeing beyond it being able to see through it mm-hmm. as kind of our heroine's journey for our time Mm. You know, Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. would talk about, you know, the hero's journey in that yeah. the hero gets this call for adventure and then sometimes he refuses the call, but then he eventually goes in the call like a, like a Star Wars yeah. and um, goes through this road of trials and tribulations and then comes out with some kind of boon, some kind of either like a physical something like chalice, you know, or, mm-hmm. or with mm-hmm. some kind of wisdom that he can bring back into the community. So if we were yeah. to look at the religion of thinness in that way, um, kind of like where you're, there, there comes a point where it hits you, <gasps> whoa, there's something wrong with this. I don't know yeah. that I can continue living this way. When, when the body says no, when the body says no more, no more dieting, when mm-hmm. you're tired of doing it, like no matter how yeah. much you try to willpower yourself into yes. it, the body's like your soul, your mind, you can't, you just can't do it anymore. Yeah. But at the same time, you're so terrified of letting go of this yes. thing that you believe yes. to be true for so long. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you're caught between like a sword and a wall. Yeah. What would you say happens Yeah. to women who do not answer this call? Women who kind of know this but continue to live it. It is, you did such a great job describing that because it is so scary to give it up. It is so scary. And depending how, how tight your grip is on thinness as your ultimate goal, you know, you may not call it that, but it is. If your grip on that is so tight, then giving it up and letting go of that is, it's so scary. It's so painful. And I think there are good reasons not to give it up. Women experience a lot of social approval through keeping that as a key feature of their identity. Women experience a lot of, um, you know, self-approval. So I think we have to acknowledge exactly what you're saying, that making that shift and deciding I'm going to live with my meaning, my source of meaning in something else, um, 
is hugely challenging, hugely painful. And I think we need to understand that, um, you know, women stay stuck for a reason. It's more comfortable. They, they get social approval. They get um, all of the kind of goodies you get from our culture when you look like you're supposed to look. And, you know, sometimes I think, I know for me, I felt like I guess I kind of had to hit bottom and just feel like, yeah, I don't want to live like this anymore. It's scaring me physically. I was, like I said, just kind of deteriorating, wasn't menstruating, getting cavities. My hair was getting thin. Um, my skin was icky. Um, I don't want to live like this anymore either in my mind because it just felt like I couldn't function at all without thinking about losing weight or what I needed to do to be burning calories. And I think making that journey, and I, I love the way you frame it as a kind of heroine's journey of our time, is so, um, feels so dangerous and so unknown. After you've been living so long with something that feels so secure and so gives the, you the illusion of control. I mean, it really does give you this temporary feeling of being in control if you can control what you eat. Giving that up and realizing that life is not about control is and trusting, learning to trust, um, is it's just um, excruciatingly painful and takes a tremendous amount of courage. And this is going back to what we were talking about. I don't think it's something you can do alone. I mean, you're the only person who can make that choice, but expecting yourself to do it without the support of others who have also, maybe they're a little bit further along on the journey, but they've also encountered all of the challenges on that journey and they're willing to wrestle with it. Um, is crucial. And then finally, I'd, I'd also say that I think one of the things that prevents us from shifting the paradigm and starting on the journey is we think we have to do it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just way too overwhelming. And I remember, you know, my journey out was really a day at a time. And I can't say that enough that even making a decision, you know, that I am so sick of living like this. Even that recognition is, is, is a sacred moment, I think. And then, you know, sometimes it's an hour at a time. Um, I'm going to stop. I'm going to not be engaged in destructive dieting or destructive exercising or destructive self-loathing. Um, and then, you know, eventually women learn to put together two hours at a time or two days at a time. Um, but it's not a linear journey. I think that's the thing. It's not like you can just suddenly walk right out of disordered eating and bad body image. I, it, the journey you're describing, I think, um, is sometimes, you know, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. But, you know, what could be more worthwhile than trying to live in relationship with what really are your sacred values? Because I think, most women would not say thinness is my sacred value, right? Mm -hmm. We live often as if it were, but it's not. We know that there are values that are much more worthy of our devotion, you know, whether it's loving our families, loving our friends, taking care of the environment, um, serving humanity, you know, waking up, becoming conscious in our lives, so we know there are values that are more important than thinness. But that's painful. <laughs> that's painful yes. to acknowledge awesome. because, yeah. because yeah. you know, uh, Ram Dass, he gave a great talk back in the 70s about mm -hmm. 
how to the human heart, how to keep your human heart from shutting down yeah. when you're noticing all of the pain that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, as, as women, because we care, because our body is metaphor, both men and women, but for us specifically, mm-hmm. our body is metaphor for the earth, the earth yeah. births life, we birth life. Yeah. Nature is, you know, has moods and nature is not predictable and we can feel the same way within a day. Um, mm-hmm. and we see the damage, the, the, the raping that is happening to the planet. We know we hear it in the news, you know, um, you know, global warming and deforestation and the way that animals are treated and, an, you know, animal agriculture and the atrocities that are happening to so many young women, you know, uh, sex trades and all these different, there's just so many, yeah. so many causes that we could ally ourselves with, yeah. uh, to, to, to make a difference, but that's some heavy stuff, you know, that requires, that requires to have a really strong, I don't know if it's backbone or what it is to be Mm. able to deal with those types of issues and just not get depressed. Yeah. In many ways, it's just easier to continue on the religion of thinness because it's not as deep. It's not as deep at all. And it's so convenient. It's such a convenient moral path, the religion of thinness, right? The moral path of the religion of thinness is you create a good body and then you're a good person. Mm-hmm. And thinking about and confronting all the forms of suffering you just named, the environmental destruction, the sex trafficking, I mean, the list is so long, poverty, all of those. Thinking about my relationship with the bigger kinds of suffering in the world and how how can I channel my moral energies into those causes is much more messy, much more complex and takes a lot of energy. And so by contrast, gosh, can I be good by refusing dessert or, you know, having only carrots for lunch or something? I mean, that's a really simple, superficial, easy way to feel good, but it's the way that our culture really supports. And so what if, you know, being good, Eve Ensler has a wonderful book, by the way, called The Good Body. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend good it. And the Good Body, Eve Ensler. Um, she's the playwright who wrote The Vagina Monologues. Oh, okay. And talked about, you know, after decades of saying vagina, 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 she realized that her self-hatred towards her vagina, which she had kind of worked through, <laughs> then became located in her stomach, which she felt was too big. And so she, her, her book is beautiful because she describes this tortured relationship with her stomach. And at the end, she reflects on the idea that what if to be good and to have a good body is to be able to live in the mess and to be able to accept that mess and to be in the mess and to be okay with the mess at the same time that we care deeply to the point where our hearts are breaking about the suffering of others. And, um, you know, I, I tend to, gravitate towards a lot of Buddhist teaching because I think, I don't know, maybe my whole experience of an eating disorder and coming out of that and trying to live in a world of suffering has just made me think a lot about suffering. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist author I like a lot, and he has this precept that he has taken to not avoid contact with suffering. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Just think about that for a minute. What does it mean to not avoid contact with suffering? Why that's so powerful for me is it goes in two directions. It goes in do not avoid suffering in yourself, which is something I just, 
you know, to be honest, I don't like that at all. I would love, I don't like spending time with the suffering in my own life. <laughs> I wish it were gone. I wish I could make it go away. But um, the practice of not avoiding suffering in myself, then I think helps me not avoid suffering in the world. And I think this issue is deeply related to how we relate to our bodies. And because it's such an escapist thing to focus on the size of my body, really? I mean, it's a, it's a form of escapism for me to, to put my energy there. And the reality is there's suffering. There's suffering in my life. Um, you know, even being many years out of an eating disorder, uh, there's still plenty of suffering in my life. It's still far from perfect. Um, and if I avoid that in myself, I avoid it in the world. And but, if I, uh, no, sorry, go ahead. just one more thing on that. The other thing that I'm really thinking about a lot lately is if I expect perfection in my own body, do you think I can really do that without expecting perfection in other people's body? Exactly. You know, so the self judgment, how, how much I practice that and how much I ritualize the self judgment in my own life I think I do that to other people, too. As much as I don't want to, I think I do. And so, for me, part of healing my own relationship with my body is a way of healing my relationship with the world, with others. And to be able to love the cellulite, the hair in the wrong places, (laughs) you know, everything that so supposedly is wrong with my body, to be able to be at peace with that allows me to really feel so much more pleasure in other people's diverse bodies. You know, having these body image issues and food issues is, there's a sense of embarrassment that I felt because Mm -hmm. I, at some point it hit me, I guess, in looking back at history and looking at like, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Mm -hmm. all these women who worked so hard, Harriet, all these women who worked so hard for me to have the right to vote, for me to be able Mm -hmm. to walk down the street, you know, without a man walking, you know, with me, for me to go to school, for me to travel the world by myself. I mean, the privilege, it's, it's privilege. We are, we have inherited what the women before us, the gifts that they have given us. And in many ways, it's like, oh, well, that's great. That means we're at a place now, I think, for a lot of women in this country where more than any other time in history, women in this country, for the most part, have a great opportunity to do whatever they want, (laughs) really, to do whatever they want, to be whoever they want to become. And that sounds like, well, that's easy. That Who wouldn't take that? But there's a lot of responsibility in that as well, which is terrifying because now you have all this freedom. Now you don't have to rely on a society telling you what to do. Great. We don't have to be religious anymore, but at the same time, you know, then that means we have to create the structure for ourselves. You're mentioning Buddhism, you know, that, that importance of developing the witness that if you learn Mm -hmm. how to, when you're having even negative thoughts about yourself again, and you thought you were getting all better, you thought you were loving yourself. And now again, you're thinking, Oh, I need to lose weight. Mm -hmm. If instead of attacking that, Mm -hmm. if instead of, of, starting to feel guilty because you aren't recovered enough. You see your, your own, you validate your own suffering because there is suffering in that. Yeah. And you see it as a way to relate to the suffering of the world because mm-hmm. although in, in many of our cases, it's, Oh, it's just an eating disorder or it's just this body image obsession or oh, it's just chronic dieting. There's anxiety there. You know, these eating yeah. disorders, they, they're, pretty much identical to obsessive compulsive disorders. It's it's pretty much works the same way in the brain. 
and if you look at what, what's what's the inherent what what causes obsessive compulsion, it's mm-hmm. a need for uh, it's a need for security. It's mm-hmm. you know anxiety. It's yeah. it's not being able to breathe. Why aren't you able to breathe? Because mm-hmm. I'm not connected to myself. Because I'm not centered. Because I'm not grounded. What does that mean? Well, it means that I'm not quite okay with the idea that I'm going to die one day. You know, like you really <laughs> begin to ask questions and questions and questions. You yeah. get deeper and deeper into the onion. So I think for someone who has an eating disorder or has some kind of body image or food, food issue, really taking the time to just observe without judgment, like you said, don't make it perfect. Um, but just observe, like be curious about, huh, yeah. why am I thinking this? Huh? Yeah. You know, like there's a part of me that has a lot of willpower and there's another part of me that just acts automatically. What's that about? Right. So you have a, um, a lecture on, on YouTube where you talk about, um, the five Buddhist moral principles. Um, and I'll just go through them briefly. Sorry, as I mentioned, sometimes my questions don't get right to the point. I just talk. And no, then... I, I, love, I love hearing your thoughts. Um, you talk about, one, do not kill. Two, mm-hmm. do not steal. Three, do not engage in sexual misconduct. Four, do not lie. And five, don't consume intoxicants. Can you talk a little bit about those and how they relate to the religion of thinness or how we can use these five principles to become aware of our relationship to our food, to to food and our body as a means to escaping this religion of thinness. Yeah. Well, and I think if we're going to give up a source of meaning and a source of feeling good about ourselves that the religion of thinness gives us, we need something to replace it with. And so I love the, the five Buddhist precepts because they suggest a kind of ethical direction and they're not they're called precepts they're not called rules or laws so it's not about perfection it's about kind of guideposts to go in this direction and the very first one to basically it's to not kill to cause no harm um to put it in a a positive light you could say to practice nonviolence. And um, so the first Buddhist precept, if we think about it as practicing nonviolence or not causing harm, there's, it's such a rich teaching to think about in relation to our own physicality because we harm ourselves with our thoughts. We harm ourselves with the expectations we have and um, the expectations we have absorbed from our culture that we have not thought critically enough about. So to to think about practicing, what would it mean to practice a nonviolent relationship with your body? To not see your body as needing to be punished, to not see your body as needing to be controlled, to not see your body as needing to be somehow the enemy. Um, but what would it mean to practice a nonviolent, you know, and I would even say loving or friendly relationship with your body, to, ca- to stop the cycle of harm that our thoughts perpetuate and the thoughts that we think are our own but as you said you know when you really observe those thoughts where do they come from they came from the society and our exposure 24 7 to all of those messages that were not good enough so how about the practice of nonviolence by just learning to recognize those messages for what they are see where they came from and realizing that we can make a different choice and practice thinking different thoughts you know and, and some of the other precepts i mean the precept about not stealing i mean in some ways we're stealing from our own 
from our own life. I mean, we're stealing our own life by spending so much energy thinking about, um, you know, thinness is the answer and fear of fat and fear of chaos and fear of loss of control. So, you know, there's a, there's another way of thinking about the second moral precept too, which is to practice generosity, practice generosity toward yourself. What if you treated yourself with the friendly attitude or the the kind of commitment to friendship that you show your friend who's going through a hard time you know what if we learned and what if we taught our children how to cultivate self-compassion and self-forgiveness instead of perfection and i think the teaching on um, practicing healthy sexuality and sexual responsibility is so important too because honestly you know, part of this whole religion of thinness is perpetuated by the objectification of women as sexual objects. And we buy into that. We buy into that. We get a sense of worth by turning ourselves into sexual objects. I'm not saying that wanting to be and feel sexy, there's something wrong with that at all. But for whom? Mm. For whom? And whose definition of being sexy are we using? And that's super important because well, what does sexy mean to you? Does it mean having collagen injected lips does it mean talking a certain way or wearing a certain type of makeup wearing a certain type of clothes like sexuality is something that i've really become very interested in there's this guy um his name is elliot holse he's he's got a huge following because he talks a lot to young men who are trying to figure Mm -hmm. out you know how to be themselves in the world and he's very encouraging talks a lot about archetypes and the sacred masculine but he he talks about sexuality as something that has been sold to us that yeah. we're no longer even connected with what that even means. He's like, if you think about like, like animals or what sexuality is in, in the, you know, pre advertisement world, mm. you know, pre Christian world, even it means like a certain type of flow mm. within your body. Even if yeah. you think of like, for example, the Kundalini waking, sure. going through your, it's a sense of like vitality. It's a sense of energy. It's a sense energy. Of like, hey, you, yeah. you want to go in like, you know, reproduce, you know, you want to like feel, you want to be like, you want to go and penetrate and at the same time be penetrated. And it could not just be like a, in a sexual way, but going yeah. into the world and having the world yeah. go into you, yeah. you know, sexuality even goes beyond just the sexual organs. It's, it's like the Kundalini, it's the creative right. desire, yeah. but creativity for whom, who are you create? who are you right. living for? Who, it, and it's our life. It's our yeah. life force. Sexuality is our life force. So who are you giving that to? Like you're the potential to create something yeah. in this world, be it another human being, be it something art, be it something meaningful within yourself. Who, whose, whose life are you living? Yeah. I love the language of life force that you're using and connecting it with sexuality because I think of the life force as a way of talking about the sacred. Mm. The sacred life force that keeps everybody alive, it keeps our hearts pumping, it keeps the trees growing, it keeps the whales, you know, making their songs, that there's a life force that seems to permeate everything. I don't know if some people might want to call it God, some people might want to call it nature. To me, it doesn't matter what you call it, there's a life force. And, you know, one of the things that I realized in relation to sexuality, something clicked for me once I thought about how the way that sexuality had been taught to me through my body was all about how I looked. It wasn't about how it felt. It wasn't about how my body felt. I was very disconnected from the life force of my body because all of the energy was like, my body was a text for other people to look at, not 
part of the earth, you know, not a, a part of the earth that, you know, was something for me to feel. And so I, when I started practicing meditation, actually it was years after I started practicing meditation, um, I started, I, I got a focus on trying to feel life energy in my body and trying to feel what was that like to be alive, to feel alive, to feel life energy in my body. And practicing in that way really shifted my ability to feel my body from the inside rather than focus on how it looks from the outside. And for me, that's kind of really pivotal shift, I think. Um, and I would have to say, you know, it's funny because it is a part of that ethical precept of responsible sexuality, I think, means knowing how you feel on the inside because you can't feel if something's right or wrong for you if you're totally focused on, you know, what you look like for somebody else. So, um, and then you that, have to put it on other people to do it for you, you know, then right, that kind right. of becomes kind of unfair because no, if you don't take exactly. responsibility for what, what is the life force? What is, what is it that you're trying to create? What is, what is that desire within you? If you don't get mm -hmm. in touch with that own desire within you, then you're continuously looking for the outside world to give it to you and you'll be disappointed. Right. And enough will never be enough. Like you can never get enough approval from the outside world. Right. So yeah, finding that and connecting with that within yourself. I don't know. Did you want to talk about the last two um, moral precepts just quick? Um, well, I, I do, but there's, um, there's one thing that I, well, the other one is do not lie and then don't consume intoxicants, right. um, which actually what I'll do is I'll just play, I'll just play part of your talk at the end okay. of the, sure. of the outro of the podcast. Just uh, very quickly, I would like to talk about the, the stuff that you're working on now. I know mm -hmm. you're working on looking at our difficulty in accepting what we consider to be overweight people. Yeah. Um, and our inability to accept that they're okay being overweight, that it's, you know, um, mm. we judge them and mm -hmm. we're like, you should not be okay with that. You need to change that. And when they're okay <laughs> with that, when they're like, no, I'm actually fine. We're like, that's not possible. <laughs> so can you just talk we, a little bit I, about that? Yeah. We find it hard to believe that, a, a, and I'm going to use the word fat here deliberately because I want to de- stigmatize that word. Um, we oftentimes find it difficult to believe that a fat person can actually feel okay with themselves. And let's focus on fat women here. Um, I think that that is, says so much more about us than it does, or, you know, a person who may be making that judgment than it does about, um, fat people themselves. I read this wonderful blog. Oh gosh, I'm in a space on the author, but she's talking about, um, how fat women often, if they love themselves, that self-love almost becomes controversial and that there's a perception that fat women shouldn't love themselves. That they should be. Yeah. Jess Baker. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, and she's asking the question, why is self-love controversial for fat women? You know, and when you put it in those terms and you realize that so-called normal bodied people often feel, um, that fat women shouldn't love themselves, it really becomes very unflattering for the normal body person who's making that judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And she just ma Baker makes this um, claim that part of the problem that thin or normal-sized people have a hard time with fat people self-acceptance is because they've devoted so much of their life to getting thin that it, they feel it's not fair that somebody can actually have self-acceptance when they're big or large-bodied or fat because I've worked so hard to be thin and, and you know, I still don't have the self-acceptance. So I really think um, 
I, I think the fat acceptance movement is gaining momentum and it's going to make a huge contribution to how we see bodies if we can expand our imaginations and allow ourselves to recognize that we don't need to all come in one size and that um, the physical diversity that people of different sizes manifest is something beautiful and it's an asset to our culture. And that, I would also add, um, I've done some reading that has really convinced me that health is possible at a variety of sizes. We need to abandon that notion that health equals thinness, um, especially because there's nothing healthy about a large-bodied person thinking they need to be thinner when their body just isn't built to be thin. Um, and so... I love the health at every size movement is really characterizes itself as a peace movement. And by that, I mean a movement that is trying to make peace possible for people of all sizes and not just, you know, the people who are thin. So the fat acceptance movement, and there's actually an academic field now called fat studies, which is super cool. Um, and um, they really emphasize calling into question some of the assumptions that our culture encourages us to take for granted, that fat people need to lose weight, that fat is ugly, that fat is a sign of being out of control, that fat is more uh, symbolizes moral laziness. Yeah. I think if we really look closely at what our fear of fat is, it's that fear of chaos. It's that fear of not being in control. And this is why I think spirituality is really important in coming out of the religion of thinness, because spirituality is how do we relate to what we don't control in our lives? Do we have a relationship with what we don't control that requires us to get back in control and, you know, whatever it takes? Or can we find a way to cultivate a relationship with what we don't control that is characterized by generosity, courage, um, not needing to have it all together, being okay with the mess, um, self-acceptance, acceptance of others, non-judgment. And I think that relationship with what we don't control, becoming conscious of it and becoming intentional about it is really key. Thank you, Michelle, so much for your time. I love the work you've done and like looking into, you know, these fat studies, do you, are there any authors or any particular people who, um, who are kind of like notable in this newer field, uh, academics? Yeah. yeah. And you're welcome, by the way. I've loved, um, our conversation. Marilyn Wan's got a great book. Um, and it's, oh, geez, I want to say fat. I think it's called fat. So, no, is that the title? I have to go look at my bookshelf if you want me to look at my bookshelf. No, 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 no it's okay. I, I, could, I could look it up. After Marilyn Wan, W-A-N-N, mm -hmm. has uh, got a fabulous book um, that's very easy to read and super funny. She's really has a great sense of humor. Um, and there's also the Fat Studies Reader, which is a collection of essays by, it's a little bit more academic, but I find it really accessible. The introduction um, to that uh, the Fat Studies Reader is also by Marilyn Wan. And um, she does just a fabulous job debunking a lot of the myths. As far as the health at every size literature goes, I highly recommend um, anything by Linda Bacon. And um, she, Bacon. Linda Bacon, isn't that funny? Yeah, her name too. Um, and she and uh, she's got a book with Lucy Aframore, I think is her name, um, that's called Body Respect. 
And that is a very accessible book. It's not long. You could read it in a couple hours. And she will blow you away with peer-reviewed scientific research that calls into question the myth that thinness equals health. And she really brings home this notion that we can be healthy at a variety of sizes, we can be beautiful at a variety of sizes, and working toward that vision is actually working towards a healthier society as well. So she brings in a kind of social justice element to it that I really like. Uh, it's very exciting to see this and even to see, it's in pop culture, but, you know, Ashley Graham, who is a, a quote-unquote plus-size model, Mm-hmm. was one of the three um, women to to be on Sports Illustrated. Not that really oh, matters yeah. in my world, but yeah, I sure. think for the overculture, it's a big yeah. step. Yeah. Um, we change it, everywhere. It's, yeah. it's great. And to think that what will happen when that myth, that beauty myth is debunked, the weight mm-hmm. myth is debunked, the amount of power that women will find yes. within themselves that will be liberated yeah. once they begin to see images of other women doing the same. It's incredibly empowering. It is. That's a great note to end it on too. Just think of the, the energy that we can devote to creating a better world. If once we stop pouring so much energy into trying to create a better body. Mm. There have been many occasions when I have felt embarrassed to talk about my history with eating disorders Because when compared to the violence and suffering that so many people experience around the world, such as poverty, rape, forced marriages, sex trafficking, wars, diseases, I felt as though my eating disorders were not a real problem. I couldn't give my suffering any validation because it felt like a non-problem, one that was self-created, self-inflicted, and that I should have no pity for. So long as I continue to dismiss my own suffering, I would never be able to look at it in the eye for what it was, where it came from, what it wanted, and how I could use its wisdom to my advantage. I invite men and women who experience disordered eating and poor body image to not shove this under the rug. Look at all the resources you are spending on trying to change yourself to fit the image that many industries benefit from having you believe is what you should look like. Doesn't it make you angry to think that you are being exploited without you recognizing that that's what's been happening all along? So many years of your life, so much energy, money, so much time that could have been spent doing something that actually was truly meaningful and that provided fulfillment, real fulfillment. All of that has been devoted to a religion of some kind of perfection. There is a lot of money to be made from you if you stay a slave to the religion of thinness or fitness or muscularity or any other kind of perfectionistic, black and white, extreme way of living. To stay awake and committed to loving yourself in a world that benefits greatly from your self-abuse takes a lot of courage, compassion, persistence, and a strong desire to finally live your life on your own terms. What if you learned to love yourself just as you are? What if you could still make decisions to improve your health, but what if those decisions came from a place of love instead of a a place of hatred and self-rejection? Today, I really try to implement this into my workouts because for a long time, 
you know, I went to the gym to get rid of what I didn't like. And it got to the point where I didn't even enjoy exercise anymore. I hated it. I no longer enjoyed the one thing that had been a source of, of happiness for me, a source of Zen and connection. You know, I turned exercise into something unpleasant. It was no longer fun to work out from a place of enjoyment is a very different attitude to exercising, uh, to eliminate, you know, body fat or to abolish jiggle or to replace yourself with a version of you that others will approve of. My body, just as it is, with cellulite and a soft belly that likes to fold when I sit on my chair, is something that I will no longer reject or be abusive to. I can't afford it. I can't afford to lose another second kneeling to and worshipping the God of perfection. Instead, I choose to worship the goddess of change, of mystery, of love and acceptance, of inspiration, the goddess Kali of creation and destruction because that is life. We cannot afford to be warriors fighting ourselves anymore. We need to put that energy and focus into resolving bigger issues that really do matter, into issues that actually threaten us as individuals and as a species. I can't tell you what your calling is in life, but I can tell you that it is not to be perfect or thin or rock hard. Your calling, your religion, your devotion, your rituals, your God or your goddess, these aren't there to hurt you. They are there so that you can acknowledge them and take their hand so that the two of you can walk along this lifetime creating true meaning. Only by refusing to spend one more cent one more instant as devotees to the religion of thinness can we walk our path i can get preachy sometimes so i apologize but a part of the reason why i can get preachy about this is because it's something that i need to hear myself i too can easily forget this and um i realize that i can't anymore and you may be at a point in your life when you realize that you you just can't you just it's just no longer fun you know it just no longer means anything. And there's a part of me that kind of still wishes that I believed in the religion of thinness because it was more, it was just easier in a way. But I just can't. I know better now. And, you know, this requires like an, an initiation of dying to our old selves and being born into a newer self, a newer self that we, we, don't, we don't quite know who that person is yet. I mean, we kind of have an idea. If we get in touch with our heart, we have an idea of who we are at the core. But letting go of the religion of thinness is embracing mystery and chaos and believing that we'll make it. And I think we will make it because our grandparents have made it this far with all the different you know, mass extinctions that have happened throughout the history of the world. Life is still here. So I think that it's important that we shed this religion to make sure that we can continue to survive, to live, to enjoy the beauty of life. Not as punishment, but, you know, as heaven on earth. So, um, I will leave you with the last two of the five moral precepts that Michelle spoke about, which are do not lie and do not consume intoxicants. You can find more info on Michelle Lilwika, her articles, and her YouTube videos in the description of this podcast 
on both iTunes and Blog Talk Radio and on my website, thebodyhigh.com, blog entry, Michelle Lolwika podcast. Thank you, Michelle, so much. You've changed my life for the better. I am eternally grateful. And I know that any, anybody who's listening to this will benefit extremely from your message. The fourth mindfulness training is do not lie. So one could say that in many ways, currently human beings are engaged in one of the biggest collective self-deceptions in human history, right? The idea that we can continue going on living as we are without consequences. And to come out of this lie, to come out of this state of denial requires a great deal of effort and a great deal of honesty. The flip side of this mindfulness training of do not lie is to speak truthfully. And this includes speaking truth to power, whether it's speaking truth to power of corporations, the fossil fuel industry, whatever uh, seems to be damaging the environment um, and benefiting from it financially is a good way to speak truth to power too. Listening deeply is another side of this particular mindfulness training, do not lie. In order to stay honest with ourselves, we have to listen deeply, and we haven't been doing a very good job of that. We haven't listened deeply enough to what the scientists are telling us. We haven't listened deeply enough to what the spiritual traditions are telling us about care for creation. And we haven't listened deeply enough to what poets and artists and musicians and people who are inspiring our motivation to make change um, can do for us. Okay, the fifth mindfulness training is to not in, to not consume intoxicants. So this has to do with a lot of Buddhists don't drink alcohol and don't smoke and don't do drugs. But there are all kinds of toxins that are beyond that kind of conventional realm. And those toxins um, come into us by what we eat. And there are lots of links between how we, what we consume and the impact of the, our consumption patterns on our own body and the impact of those choices on the earth. Usually when you're consuming something that's good for your own body in terms of food, that's good for the earth too because it was grown in a way that is more sustainable, maybe without um, pesticides and toxins. But this idea of reducing taking in toxins also has to do with the kind of media that we ingest. And in particular, how engaged are we with digital media? Are we more engaged with the screen than we are with the natural world? I love the quote that um, Gretchen shared, that we can't protect something we don't love, and we can't love something that we're not feeling connected to. And if you agree with Richard Love that we suffer to a certain extent from nature deficit disorder connected to attention deficit disorder in his, in his thesis. He thinks we don't spend enough time in nature and it dulls our sensitivity and makes us less capable of sustained attention. Then practicing mindfulness is a good remedy. Now I started with like two, two minutes less. Can I have one extra minute? Okay, all right. So I'm going to read you just on that note, last note, a very short story from Thich Nhat Hanh that d demonstrates this um, nature deficit disorder and how um, it's connected to um, the situation that we're in and how practicing mindfulness um, may be a way out. He says, imagine a city that has only one tree left. People are mentally disturbed because they are so alienated from nature. Then one doctor in the city sees why people are getting sick, and she offers each person who comes to her this prescription. You are sick because you are cut off from other nature. Every morning, take a bus and go to the tree in the center of the city and hug it for 15 minutes. 
Look at the beautiful green tree and smell its fragrant bark. After three months of practicing this, the patient will feel much better. But because many people suffer from the same malady and the doctor always gives the same prescription, after a short time, the line of people waiting their turn to embrace the tree gets very long. More than a mile, and people begin to get impatient. Fifteen minutes now is too long for each person to hug the tree, so the city council legislates a five-minute maximum. Then we have to shorten it to one minute, then only a few seconds, and finally there's no remedy at all for the sickness. If we are not mindful, we might be in this situation soon.